Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm very happy that you are spending time with us on the show uh, today. Lots to talk about. Let me get right to the panel. Greg Bluestein, AJC political reporter, is uh, my Wednesday regular partner on the show and is with us today. Greg Bluestein, uh, did I see that you've already begun talking about your book, which will be published in March at events? Did I see you at an event at, at some kind of event at the Jewish Community Center? Yes, that's going to be the book launch on March 24th. The book comes out March 22nd, but that'll be our first big event. And then, but there'll be other events. There'll be actually an event in Athens the day before. And I've been already hitting the speaking tour, talking about Georgia politics to, to audiences all over the state. So it's been real fun to you get this uh, geared up. Remind everybody of the name of the book and just what you've written about. That is a very good point. It's called Flipped. It's out March 22nd. You can pre-order it right now on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any other <laughs> book sites. And uh, it is about Georgia's 2020 transformation from a deep red state to a purple state. I was fortunate enough, I've mentioned this on the show when you've been on before, to get an advanced copy from your editor to read it. And it's just a terrific book, in part because you take us inside rooms. We, we all who are here, all of the people, for instance, on this panel today have a pretty good idea of how things uh, uh, broke down over the course of the 2020 election. But you've taken us into the behind the closed doors in some of the many rooms where uh, things were going on that we didn't know about. And so the book is really, really fun and, and informative reading. So I'm looking forward to seeing it when, when people get a chance to read it out there, Greg. Thank you, Bill. We're also joined today uh, by Karen Owen, professor of political science at the University of West Georgia, who we're glad to have uh, back with us today. Uh, Karen, I always like to point out that um, your uh, uh, special area of interest has to do with women in elective office. And um, so I, I think that's important uh, for our listeners to, to know about. And uh, certainly there are times on this show when that becomes a really, uh, uh, it's important to get your perspective on that. But welcome to Political Thank Rewind you. today. Thank you. I'm We're glad also to be joined here. Oop, didn't mean to interrupt you. Heather Farley is uh, back with us. She's the chair of the Department of Criminal Justice, Public Policy, and Management at the College of Coastal Georgia. Hi, Heather. Hi, thanks so much for having me back. Appreciate it. And glad you're here. And to round out our panel of political scientists, Adrian Jones, professor of political science and the director of pre-law at Morehouse College, is back with us as well. Hi, Adrian. Hi, how are you? Happy New Year. Good. Yeah, I was going to say all all three, the three of you uh, haven't been on the show uh, since the start of 2022. So Happy New Year to all of you. All right, let's get uh, to the topics of the day. Uh, Greg, um, we know that last week President Biden decided to make Georgia ground zero for his fight to pass 
At that point, two different Voting Rights Acts, one of which was the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, in the Senate. They'd already passed the House. He came down here. Uh, he was thump. He was thumping the podium saying, this is essential. We've got to get this passed. He used some rhetoric that a number of people, certainly Republicans, but, but a number of observers thought was a little over the top, comparing those who were opposing the bills to Bull Connor, uh, for example. Um, but there's no question he was impassioned about all this. But the fact of the matter is, even though they're debating this measure in the Senate, there's almost no chance the president can get the votes he needs to pass it. Yeah, he can't convince Senators Manchin and Sinema to, to change their mind about relaxing filibuster rules. And this is a big defeat for, for Biden and his administration and for, and for Senate Democrats who have made this a priority. It's not like it's going to stop, right? They're not going to give up this fight. And um, if you ask Senator Warnock about it, he talks about how voting rights measures in the civil rights era took decades, you know, decades to, to push through. So this is the beginning of a, uh, of, of a long fight. But certainly with Democratic control of, all, of, of, of both uh, houses in Congress and of the presidency, there was hope that this could be muscled through and there, there, there could be even some sort of compromise bill. Democrats, of course, can't help but noting that um, previous voting rights measures had broad support from Republicans, too, in, in the not-so-distant past. Um, but this is a different era right now, and Republicans are, are aligned against it, saying that it's a, it's a federal takeover of states' rights, which, as Senator Warnock mentioned in his MLK Day ceremony, harkens back to some of the same rhetoric that, that um, opponents of voting rights bills in the 1960s used. It wasn't racial they, they weren't overtly racial overtones, but they were certainly the undertones of, of using states' rights and other, other such rhetoric. Adrian, there are any number of uh, voting rights advocates who have faulted President Biden for not jumping on this more quickly. He, he, uh, he put it to the side when he worked on both his big, big uh, COVID bailout bill and then the infrastructure bill and then tried to uh, get his social policy agenda passed that that what was initially a three billion dollar build back uh, act passed. And so there are people who feel he came awfully late to this party and may have been one of the reasons uh, that uh, this thing isn't moving in a more positive direction right now. I think the president is late to the game. Um, I've been, of course, pondering why so late, uh, but perhaps the administration thought that they wouldn't be able to push through any of their other legislation if they got stuck in a fight on voting rights uh, earlier in the year. Um, my concern, of course, is that voting is key to all <laughs> of government, um, federal and local. And so the loss of the potential of some new voter protection, which I think right now is extremely important, is very problematic. Um, I was thinking last night about the, the historical times, though. Um, you know, part of the reason why the Voting Rights Act in 1965 um, was able to be passed had to do with that conflagration of historical events, right? You have Bloody Sunday. Um, you have people pressing towards civil rights, and as a result, you're able to get the Voting Rights Act. Whereas today, we're just coming off of January 6th. The environment is almost the opposite, and I feel like we're seeing the opposite kind of leverage for um, voter protection, uh, which is going to be 
sounds like none. Karen? So, you know, both of the panelists thus far have really talked a little bit here about history, and I think that's important as we even think about these measures today. You know, the Voting Rights Act had partisan, bipartisan support in 65. It did take Republicans because Southern Democrats were not going to support it right away. And these measures have come, there's two different voting bills, right? One's dealing with federal elections, one's dealing specifically with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, yet they're brought together to us in the news as the Democrats' voting bills. And that doesn't mm. say bipartisan work. And I think, you know, the Republicans are probably not screaming anti-voting rights, it's just the way the legislation and in our partisan environment is screaming added. We're not getting the coverage. We're not getting the debate that's probably needed at this time. And Greg's point about, you know, Warnock and others mentioned it takes time to get legislation that is this comprehensive passed. And if you want it done well, and then we're now in gridlock, right? Congress is gridlock. They will not move things quickly. But if you maybe take a step back, maybe this is the president's move and say, let's take these in smaller chunks, handle the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. What do we have to do to update it? Then move to the other elections pieces. Maybe that's a move forward. Heather? I guess that's... Oh, I'm sorry. No Go problem. ahead, Heather. Yeah, I was, um, I, I was struck by something Adrian said about um, sort of the timing of all of this. I wonder if, I'm sort of thinking of this idea of um, policy streams and, and how sort of everything has to align properly. And it feels like there is some political capital that's already been spent here. Um, and, and is there enough, uh, is there enough going on in our, um, in our outside world to spark enough support for, for a voting rights act like this? So, um, something else that comes to mind too is I read last night that, um, Kristen Cinema may be uh, removed from Emily's list as a result of this. Mm -hmm. and, and that was sort of interesting to me. I, I was in Arizona, um, in northern Arizona, around the time that cinema was sort of still in local politics and getting into state politics. And, um, and, and being on Emily's list was really important to her. So th that really struck me. Um, I remember her speaking at a number of community events and, and that being sort of an important point for her. And, of course, Emily's list point is um, that if – uh, if you can't uh, support access to the ballot, then you also can't support uh, choice around abortion laws. And so um, anyhow, I, that really struck me as an interesting yeah, um, it, sort of fallout of this. Adrian, I um, wanted you to get jump back in. But yes, it's true. Emily's List is saying we do not want to give uh, Kristen Cinema money in the next election cycle. Go ahead, Adrian. So I guess I hear us talking about <clears throat> how some of this needs to be built out and how it's a challenge. Um, but I also see a lot of coverage that says, you know, the GOP supported the Voting Rights Act overwhelmingly in 2006. Um, and I studied this as a part of my dissertation, and it's simply not accurate, right? I mean, we have uh, Republican pushback to the Voting Rights Act every single time it's reauthorized, if you look closely. Um, and in 2006 in particular, in what was essentially um, sort of a rebellion led by Georgian legislators, right, against the 2006 Act. So do GOP members vote for the, the VRA in 2006? Absolutely, in the Senate, 98 to 0. But the fights on the floor are epic. 
Um, and, you know, some other things like a post-Senate report that complains about the Voting Rights Act, which had never occurred in Congress, occurred in 2006. Um, so we're talking about quite a long period of time um, from voter, voter ID laws to today's big um, Georgia and Texas bills um, where Republicans have not supported the Voting Rights Act, whatever it looks like. Greg, um, let me let me just remind our listeners, because this comes up all the time. I get notes from people saying, what do these bills do? They've now been combined in one bill. That was a legislative tactic that a uh, House used. They put both of those bills together as one, and they added it to a bill that uh, had already been in the Senate. They essentially made it an amendment, which allows the Senate now to take it up without uh, having 60 votes to have a debate. Now, that that's just procedural. But let's remind people, the John Lewis uh, portion of this now combined bill is the one that would restore, to some extent, preclearance by the Department of Justice for changes that would be made in states' uh, voting uh, systems, in, uh, in all aspects of how they run elections. The Supreme Court ruled that the uh, preclearance was no longer necessary back in uh, about 10 years ago almost now. Uh, it would restore it. The bigger uh, part of the measure would establish some basic standards for elections around the country. It would make Election Day a holiday, uh, for example. It would establish a given period for, uh, a, 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 I think, 15 days of uh, of absentee voting. It would uh, all people would be given access to absentee ballots. So. The bigger bill has a lot of it uh, about process and procedures, whereas the Lewis bill addresses preclearance. If I got that right? You got it. And the bigger bill also addresses redistricting um, uh, changes. Yeah. It makes uh, uh, Election Day a national holiday. And that's why there's hope from Democratic leaders that the, the more targeted um, John Lewis bill, um, there, there could be a pathway for that because – it reinstates federal view of changes to state and local election laws and re- restores that enforcement provision that you talked about with the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Um, but so far, again, there has been no progress. Um, there, there's been signs of, of maybe consensus, but there's still been no concrete progress in moving that one forward. Karen? I mean, he's correct. The bills have, you know, it's one large bill now with all these different components. And, and you know, Adrian made a very good point about there has been opposition to the original Voting Rights Act 65 and amendments that came later. And then what we'll see in this John Lewis, and, and if my memory serves me correct from the 2006 debate where the Republicans on that, it, it really dealt with that Section 4 trigger and what forced states to be pre-cleared. And the debate was that because in, you know, the original 65 bill, it hinged on 1964 and earlier data about states. And so Republicans brought up that, you know, things had changed in those decades where you had more registered voters and you had more people participating in the process. And so some of that debate on the amendment piece was actually updating. And so now John, this John Lewis um, Voting Rights Act really goes into codifying some of the actual Supreme Court language, like in the Thornburg versus Jingle standards of what we look at for vote dilutions and redistricting claims of racial gerrymandering. And so those are components that are being played out. So I want the listeners to understand there's a lot of debate as to what has happened with the Voting Rights Act, how it has successfully gotten people registered in 
states and getting them participating and then what the next step is. Because if we look at the John Lewis Act and you're talking about preclearance coming back, which states now will be covered? Is it all 50 states or does this still go back to the deep south southern states and their history of having racial discrimination? Um, so, Heather, we should, of course, point out that well, the reason that uh, Democrats are working so hard on federal legislation is <clears throat> because of their deep-seated belief that Republican states like Georgia, in the aftermath of the 2020 election and uh, to honor Donald Trump's big lie that elections across the country were stolen, uh, impose new voting laws. Georgia certainly had a number of them that are going to end up suppressing particularly minority and likely Democratic votes. Republicans, of course, Heather, uh, like Governor Kemp, like the Speaker David Ralston, have a handy comeback for all that. They claim that what their laws uh, now does in Georgia is it makes it easier to vote, harder uh, to cheat. And Heather, we do have to point out that one of the legs they do have to stand on is that there are states like like uh, President Biden's home state of Delaware, which have less uh, liberal policies about advanced voting, uh, absentee voting, than Georgia has put in place. Nevertheless, there are a lot of other aspects of the Georgia law that people are very concerned about. Absolutely. And when I think about it, my own community of Brunswick and, um, you know, you had somebody on a, a few weeks ago or perhaps it was just last week. Um, and he was talking about the demographics of Brunswick and the demographics of Brunswick is the working poor. I mean, we have a huge population of the working poor who who can't pop out at, you know, lunchtime and, um, you know, hope upon hope that they'll get in and out of the uh, the ballot box in an hour. First of all, that's not going to happen if we have elections um, that are anything like 2020 and the lines that we had in 2020. Um, and so it's just it's not tenable for for people. So it's it's clearly a uh, restriction of access problem um, for very specific populations. So. Um, yeah, and I, I do think it's interesting sort of to think about historically uh, the ways that Republicans have supported this in the past. Well, yeah, but the game has changed significantly now. The narrative has changed around um, uh, who do we want to vote and who do we want to ensure has really good access. All right. Um, we will obviously be watching closely uh, to see what happens in the U.S. Senate, but, but more important, what happens in the weeks and months uh, beyond all of this. Um, let's turn to some election news. Greg Bluestein, uh, David Perdue and Brian Kemp now in a big, big fight over uh, campaign uh, financing or fundraising. Uh, David Perdue has filed a lawsuit charging that this this new leadership law, which the legislature passed last session, which allows the governor and a few other select leaders in the legislature on both sides of the aisle to raise unlimited amounts of money during a legislative session is unconstitutional. So Brian Kemp fires back that David Perdue, there's a PAC supporting David Perdue that is illegally interacting with the campaign. What's this all about, Greg? Yeah, well, this is about legislation that was very controversial last year. And, it get, and frankly, it gives Governor Kemp a huge head start in fundraising. Uh, when he signed it into law in July, it, it immediately went, to, went into effect. And he's already raised, he's already spent more than a million dollars 
from this uh, from the from this leadership committee to attack David Perdue. So it's already benefiting his campaign. But yeah, you summed it up. It gives certain incumbents and nominee party nominees and legislative certain legislative leaders the ability to create these leadership committees that can raise unlimited funds, even during a legislative session, um, that that can go benefit their campaigns. And it's a huge problem for not only David Perdue, but also Stacey Abrams, because under this law, even though she's the only Democratic candidate um, for, for governor right now, she can't take advantage of this legislation, this new law, until she becomes the formal nominee, which won't be until the May primary. Um, for David Perdue, it's the same issue. Even if he beats Brian Kemp, he can't take advantage of it until he becomes the nominee, which could be May or June if there's a runoff. So it gives Kemp and other incumbents a huge advantage. Democrats complained about it when it was when it was uh, before the legislature. They're also using it. They're also taking advantage of it. But they say, hey, that's how the uh, the rules work. So we've got to play by them until they're overturned. Um, David Perdue's lawsuit is being very closely watched by by politicians and, and certainly Abrams camp, which probably would have filed its own challenge had David Perdue not. So uh, there's legal experts who believe that, that this law will be either uh, struck down or at least put on hold um, while a judge can consider the merits of the case. Uh, but either way, it's another clash in many, many clashes between Governor yeah, Kemp exactly. and former Senator Perdue. Uh, Heather, one example of this leadership giving law could be, could be, this is hypothetical, um, we're going to see a, a debate over constitutional, so-called constitutional carry of guns, carrying gun concealed weapon without a permit. Um, it, under this law, a gun lobbying group could give $100,000 more to leaders in the legislature, to Governor Kemp, to the Speaker of the House, while they're debating this bill, and it would be perfectly legal under the new state law. That's exactly right. And I think what's so frustrating about this kind of a law is that incumbents already have so many advantages, advantages stacked up to begin with going into a race, um, not only financial advantages, but the ability to, for instance, uh, put out a budget that is very favorable to uh, certain groups that might encourage voters, right? They have the uh, access to a wide variety of um, speaking venues. They they have name recognition. So, you know, just to add this sort of cherry on top where they can just dump gobs of money into their campaigns from um, from a variety of sources, including special interests like gun lobbies. It's yeah, it's it's really um, it's frustrating, and it feels it feels sort of patently unfair. And of course, what this also does is it overrides the individual giving limits, which are much more stringent yep. for a, a candidate. Um, Adrian, one of the things that I think is Greg already alluded to it. Uh, let me ask you and Karen to weigh in on this. Um, this this fight is one of many that is, is unfolding, and the rhetoric is getting increasingly nasty between these campaigns. So let me just read you a couple quotes uh, that were uh, uh, reported in the last couple of days uh, about these these finance uh, uh, this financial giving fight. Uh, here's what Cody Hall, who represents the Kemp campaign, had to say after the lawsuit was filed against the leadership gifts. From shady stock trades to blatant campaign finance law violations, David Perdue has a long history of breaking the rules to benefit himself. The Perdue campaign's actions are clearly against the law and directly reflect the repeated lack of ethical conduct of Purdue himself. Actually, what he's commenting on is this 
what he said they say is collusion between this pack and the and the uh, Purdue campaign. Uh, the uh, Purdue campaign fires back. The person who should be investigated for ethics violations is Brian Kemp, using his power as the incumbent governor. Kemp changed Georgia law in an attempt to rig the race in his favor. That's unconstitutional and corrupt. It just goes to show that a 20-year career politician like Kemp will do anything to save himself. It's getting nastier and nastier, Adrian. Uh, I would agree. Um, And I'm still stunned that, particularly after the 2020 election, um, if Republicans want to galvanize voters and control the state, um, I'm not quite understanding why the governor is being primaried. Um, At the same time, I think that finance is also a problem for the individual voter, right, who doesn't have the kind of large donation to make to a governor midstream um, in the legislative session. And I think that, you know, the point of elections here is to facilitate freedom for the people. And um, I think this narrows that opportunity for Georgians. Karen? I mean, I think we see truly that the gloves are off, right? Everyone's here to battle and battle hard. And I think that, you know, we've talked since 2020 in November that all eyes of the political world are on Georgia. This heightens it, shows how many more people will be paying attention, flooding money to the state to get a message out. If that's a divisive message and it can get some voters to the polls, they're going to run with it. The sad thing is that this type of rhetoric, this type of money infusion does, you know, make voters get upset about the process. They don't enjoy the political process as much when it is thrown at them so much. So it's going to be turning on the candidates, I think, to say really how much and how far are we going to go um, to ensure our voters turn out? And then really, can we turn turn a page then to go to the November election? Because we've got to have a different type of conversation at that point. I've got to get to a break, um, and, and uh, uh, we've got a lot more topics I want to take up. Heather, I know you want to get a word in, uh, and we'll do that on the other side of the break and uh, talk about a lot more. You're listening to Political Rewind. Heather Farley from the College of Coastal Georgia, Adrian Jones, Morehouse College, Karen Owen, the University of West Georgia, and Greg Bluestein. Uh, today, Heather, you want to make a last uh, uh, comment on the nastiness of this battle before we move on? Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on something that Adrian mentioned. She sort of um, asked the big question, why? Why is Purdue jumping in here to um, to divide the party, um, especially when that is always a great GOP advantage, right? They're great at uniting as a party, and that's been a big advantage for them in the past. But I think um, finally, David Purdue's comments, uh, I think it was to the DeKalb GOP the other day, um, when he was speaking to them, he, he said, why do you think I'm not running for Senate? I looked at the calculus and I said, I didn't know if I can win alongside Brian Kemp with a divided party. The whole thing's about unity. But let's be clear, that's not really about unity. That's about unity under Trump's GOP, right? So he sees that um, what he really means is that um, if Kemp wins, Trump will, 
Trump won't in 2024. And so that's mm. that's that's sort of the, the uh, clue he's finally given us. Yeah, thank you for that observation. All right, uh, Greg, let's move on uh, if we can, please. Uh, the jolt today leads with an item about uh, Governor Kemp being out in Las Vegas. And uh, there's a connection between his visit out there and the fact that he's supporting what we already mentioned a little while ago, so-called constitutional uh, carry, which is very controversial um, in in the world of gun uh, in the world of guns. Um, there are a lot of people out there who oppose the idea of not having to have a permit to walk around with a gun in your pocket in Georgia. But talk about the governor's trip and what it, how it relates to constitutional carry. Yeah, I mean, this is a major part of his, of his re-election campaign agenda. Um, he promised back in 2018 to, to pass this legislation. Uh, it hasn't passed yet, uh, although there's been some proposals that haven't really gone anywhere. This is the year uh, that he's putting his political capital behind it and raising it as a major uh, item in his agenda. And he's going out to the largest um, firearms trade show in the nation. It's called the Shot Show in Las Vegas, and he's speaking on a panel with about eight other Republican governors, and he's expected to talk about Georgia's role as, as a growing, quiet, growing uh, ma- manufacturing hub for guns. There's 74 different um, companies that manufacture guns or accessories to guns in the state, and Remington <clears throat> became one of the larger ones just a few weeks ago when it announced a major expansion. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and um, the governor's gonna highlight that, that proposal uh, to the SHOT Show today. Um, Adrian, clearly this is a, a base-pleasing uh, effort by the governor. I, I agree. Um, and I guess I continue to be a little bit shocked about this push for gun laws. I understand its importance politically, but we just came off of a year where our reputation with uh, gun violence is not um, strong. Um, I thought the state was on <laughs> making an effort to uh, curtail gun accidents and gun issues uh, between uh, state residents. And so I'm alarmed to hear that we're going to run on a campaign um, about constitutional carry. I think it's very dangerous um, in this particular environment. You know, um, Heather, uh, we just learned uh, that uh, Hartsfield-Jackson Airport had had more guns confiscated by TSA this past year, 2021, than any other airport in the country. Now, of course, we don't know that those guns are all uh, Georgians who were carrying those guns, many of which, according to the reporting, were loaded. Nevertheless, it does speak to the uh, to the number of guns that are now in circulation around the country. Um, and you had an incident at Hartsfield Jackson Airport that relates to that. Yeah, it was it was sort of a jarring um, situation. Uh, you know, I'll start the story by saying that everything was fine. But um, a couple of weeks ago, I was traveling back from Atlanta at Hartsfield. And um, if you can sort of picture a very packed 6 p.m. crowd at the um, airport, there was a point at which I was in the security line and everyone, hundreds of people were told to freeze. Um, And at the moment, we sort of didn't know why. And it uh, grew very quiet and, and nobody was to speak. Um, And then finally, sort of as everything was cleared, uh, we learned that they had, um, I guess, uh, come across a a weapon, a gun, and um, had to ensure that it was, you know, that we had the all clear to keep going. Um, But yeah, I I think scenarios like that sort of show you that um, 
constitutional carry has some real problematic um, applications, right? I mean, when we're talking about security in an airport, um, to what extent uh, can we ensure the safety in places like airports and stadiums and so on um, under, under something like constitutional carry? Karen, we have to make it clear that Democrats are gun owners, too. Uh, so it isn't as if uh, this is an all-Republican <laughs> uh, phenomenon. Uh, there are far too many guns in the country uh, to think that it's just one party or the other that's carrying weapons. I mean, that's a very, very good point, right? A lot of Americans have guns, and a lot of times they're not talking about whether party, which party they're in and if they are or not a gun owner. I do think Heather has a very good point, and that is, we don't know the true consequences and ramifications that will come um, solely with this change. I think the one thing we can be assured of is that in the Republican primary here in Georgia, it will be a top issue to see who can outflank each one on this in the Second Amendment. And then which right, you know, which of those lobbyists, gun lobbyists, then pour money to which of those candidates. Uh, Greg, it's it's also not, maybe not important, but interesting to point out that one of the single most memorable campaign commercials of 2018, remembered not just here in Georgia, but by many political uh, junkies around the country, was Brian Kemp. Two commercials, really. Uh, one in which, of course, he's holding uh, his shotgun uh, aimed kind of at a teenage boy who wants to take his uh, daughter out. Uh, is he carrying? Does he have his gun in his hand in the pickup truck commercial, too? I can't remember. I don't think he did, but he definitely had the gun in his hand at poor Jake. Uh, and that, that <laughs> ad helped catapult him into the second-place spot in the, in, the, in the Republican primary that year. I mean, if there's, if there's one thing that really helped elevate him um, was that attention-grabbing ad that, that you know, as, as the governor, like to said, made liberals go crazy because it got a lot of attention on national media. MSNBC was talking about it kind of nonstop in that campaign cycle, and it really did um, help kind of distance himself from Hunter Hill, who was at the time seen as the, the, uh, the, the other main rival to, to get into a runoff against Casey Cagle. Okay, so we're going to watch closely as constitutional carry uh, comes into the legislative process and is debated and see how it develops. Greg, let me ask you a a little kind of a quicker uh, question. Um, We were all uh, following very closely, and no one is a reporter more closely than you, the, uh, 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 the courtship of the state to win Rivian, the electric uh, vehicle manufacturer. Uh, they won it. Uh, there was great celebration uh, across the state for the fact that Rivian was going to come in with an, a, a promise of some 8,000 or more uh, jobs. They, it, Rivian was going to help cement Georgia as a leader in the electrical, electric vehicle uh, economy. Um, Greg, we now know some of what the, the state had to give away to get Rivian. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is going to be the largest economic development recruitment package in state history. It's going to, it's going to exceed $400 million easily when it's all said and done. But the only hard number we have so far is $125 million, and that's in the governor's uh, budget proposal. It includes most of that, about $116 million worth is for the land um, in, um, in East Georgia, about an hour's uh, drive from, from Atlanta. Um, on I-20, and and the rest of it is going to be for training. They're going to be a, there's going to be a quick start training facility on site that will help uh, a state funded site that will help train um, Rivian workers to work the the manufacturing lines and to, and to serve in other roles. But again, this is just a 
part of this entire package because we're also talking about hundreds of millions of dollars for tax breaks, infrastructure improvements, road, new road construction, new highway interchanges, um, even high school courses uh, for, for, for students who want to work in the electric vehicle yeah. industry. So there's a lot going on here. You know, Adrian, I don't I think all of us are hoping that Rivian is a huge success. I mean, 8,000 jobs, eventually many more than that. It's hard not to want them to succeed. But I, I, I thought about uh, this this morning when I was reading a Wall Street Journal piece about overinflated uh, company stock values. Rivian, they reported in the journal, had in the third quarter of last year $1 million in revenues and a $123 billion loss. Their stock dropped Fifty-nine percent. So we want them to succeed, but there's no question that Georgia's. This is a big gamble on the part of Georgia and on Brian Kemp personally, who has made a big deal out of this in terms of his reelection campaign. So I'm hoping that the governor has looked at this closely um, and perhaps has spoken to them about their um, background in the business. Um, I'm also clear, however, that the governor is interested in producing packages and, um, you know, a budget that's going to encourage voters to turn out um, and to be excited about his candidacy in this next round. Um, so I think he's got something of um, attention with regard to what he's able to present Georgians this year and what might happen over the long term. Heather? Yeah, I, I actually wrote a little opinion piece on this for our local paper, the Brunswick News, um, last week. And uh, and while politicians are really excited about this, not everyone um, in in the city where this is being proposed are that excited about it, right? This is, um, as Greg pointed out, there's going to be tremendous infrastructure and money going into this um, into the city, and it's uh, going to fundamentally change not only what the city looks like, but um, but who makes up the city, right? I mean, it's, it's going to be a huge change for them. And uh, while that's probably not going to make much difference to um, maybe Kemp's campaign, uh, it certainly makes a difference to those people. Karen? So I think, you know, the governor and economic development have taken this risk to get this company here. But part of the risk, too, is, you know, really what the demand of Americans is going to be. Are we really shifting to electric vehicles? And part of that is with the national climate of are we moving to address climate change? Is that going to be coming in so that that demand increases for these vehicles so that that company can be successful and our state can be rewarded for actually wanting to invest in forward progress on policy areas, right, that we're moving in that? You know, Heather mentions, like, the community, and you think about it. We used to have a GM plant here. We used to have a Ford plant here, both closed. Those communities had to deal with what came then from those sites and then the changing. And so I think the state is hopeful that this is where we're going in the future, and we won't be facing that in a car manufacturing deal, that the future is electric. Seems to be that way in Europe. Less diesel purchases in Europe, much more electric purchases. Then maybe that will be trickling here, and the state can benefit. Um, Greg, uh, we also should point out, and, and this was certainly reported widely when the deal was closed, uh, Rivian has, has yet to produce and, se and sell their, well, they've, they've got orders 
but they have yet to produce and turn out a single vehicle. And if you order one now, I think it's 2023 before you get one. Yeah, it's an example of a company that just soared in the imagination. It's become a Wall Street darling. It was, was worth more than GM and Ford combined in terms of market capitalization um, a few weeks ago. But, yeah, it has a lot. It's a, this is a big gamble by the state. Um, uh, you know, we've, we've covered the in, in the AJC's pages about how this industry could take root but hasn't quite yet and how Georgia's trying to position itself as not, not just with Rivian, but with electric vehicle batteries mm-hmm. and with other components of the industry. And, of course, if this does take off, we're not just talking about 7,500 jobs in, in for the Rivian plant. We're talking about thousands of spinoff jobs that, that manufacture other parts of the cars that will be within a 100-mile radius of this plant. So uh, it's a big gamble, but it could also pay off very big for the state. Okay, Greg Bluestein gets the last word in this segment of Political Rewind. We're going to take our final break and come back with more. Heather Farley, living in Brunswick, uh, you've had a a ringside seat to watch the trial of the three men who've now been convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery play out. And uh, we've learned that the Department of Justice, which still has a federal hate crimes uh, uh, charge against all three, uh, Travis and Greg McMichael and Roddy Bryan, we're still expecting a trial uh, over the, the hate crimes charge. Um, but apparently the Department of Justice went to Wanda Cooper Jones and asked her if she would support uh, a plea deal that would uh, avoid the need to have yet another trial. Uh, obviously, the McMichaels are both serving 30 years with no chance of parole. Roddy Bryan could get out after 30 years. Uh, but the feds believe that they, they'd like to spare the country of another trial. Wanda Cooper Jones said, no, I think the hate crimes trial is as important as the murder trial itself. Yeah, in fact, uh, Travis McMichael, the son, uh, was actually given life in prison without parole. And, and so, and then he's also, his lawyers are in the process of asking for a retrial right now, which is not surprising at all, but um, that's, that's sort of the process we expected was for appeals and for calls for retrial. Um, yeah, the plea deal would have uh, given Travis McMichael, the son, and his father, Gregory McMichael, um, 30 years in prison if they admit that what they did was motivated by hate. Um, and one of Cooper Jones's response was, um, no, they need to they need to stand trial and and um, and face what they did. Uh, and and I certainly understand um, her desire to see that happen for sure. Um, but uh, it's interesting. The the federal trial is feeling in ways um, a lot less local um, than the the state trial felt. Um, during the state trial, there was um, sort of this uh, unified command of multi-agency um, response that we're getting together weekly and then daily to ensure that our city and um, public safety would remain safe. Um, and that kind of response is not happening this go around. I think they saw in the state trial that we just don't have that kind of, um, I guess, concern over sort of uprising and protest. Protests have been very peaceful here. Um, and, and so this, this trial is feeling a lot, a lot different in many ways than the original state uh, charges. Adrian, it's important to remind people 
that uh, Linda Donikowski's strategy for prosecuting these three men was to not talk about racial motivation. She avoided that subject uh, throughout the entire trial, and it worked to her advantage uh, to do that. So then the question becomes, Adrian, is it important for the feds to now step in and say, we are going to try these three because there's no question in our minds as the prosecutors that they killed him because he was a black, there were three white guys, and he was a black man taking a run in a neighborhood. I think so. And I think it provides a nice balance uh, towards what I think is important, which is some normalization of how we're going to treat each other, both um, residents and um, folks who we perceive as um, interlopers, police and um, victims on the street. Um, We do not see people being held accountable um, in most of these cases, right? The George Floyd decision and this Ahmaud Arbery decision are both very different and very new. Um, And so I think it is important that we also address the hateful posture that erupts between people and causes the kind of um, injury and tension that we're seeing today. And, you know, not just in terms of black people and white people, but, you know, Asian people this year, um, I think class tension is high, um, and it's really important as a nation that we decide to treat each other with care, and both in real time and also uh, when we're adjudicating issues that have come up between us. I think we also see in the national leadership coming from the Department of Justice that hate crimes are going to be tried. People are going to be charged. You're going to take this. This is serious individuals have to be held accountable. If we are to move forward as a nation and address, you know, racial issues, class issues, as Adrian just mentioned, each of these things that has to be done in a justice system where those who have made these acts are held accountable. And I think we're going to see that with the Justice Department. They're going to use these cases now as to show the nation that if you commit a hate crime, if you are doing these things against individuals, specifically in discriminating ways, then yes, you're going to be punished for it. I I do want to be careful in in the way I framed all that to start with. Um, I'm not so certain in the reporting I've seen that DOJ had absolutely decided they'd rather take a plea deal. They may have been feeling out Ahmaud Arbery's mother as they were figuring out how they were going to move forward. Greg, of course, uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, that murder was largely responsible for the fact that Georgia finally passed its own hate crimes law, which they, for two decades, could not get through in this state legislature. Yeah, not since the state Supreme Court about two decades ago struck it down for being unconstitutionally vague um, has that legislation um, been revived. And it's it's not for lack of trying. I mean, particularly Democrats. Uh, Vincent Fort comes to mind, the former state senator, every year introduced measures to revive that that statute, and it went nowhere, unfortunately, until until this tragic murder, um, and it also resulted in um, the, the the repeal of Georgia citizens' arrest law too. So it had vast ramifications, it had vast influence on the state political and legislative process. Um, it's one of those it's one of those incidents, you know, tragic murders that that really did have um, have have a broad effect in Georgia politics. 
Uh, by, by the way, Greg, I think an interesting side note to the many years that the legislature refused to pass a hate crimes bill, um, it's important to point out that the objections of many of those who opposed it were not about whether um, African-Americans should be protected by a hate crimes law, but legislators put their feet down and said, we will not support a law that uh, protects gays and lesbian Georgians from hate crimes. We don't want to acknowledge them in statute. Yeah, even after same-sex marriage was legalized by the Supreme Court, even after it seemed like we had you know, moved beyond those, those debates. Um, okay, Greg Bluestein, we're, we're starting to run out of time, but I want to stick with you for just a minute. Um, the State Department of Public Health reports that over the past week, We've had 205,000 new cases of COVID-19, uh, probably many of them being of the Omicron variant, although we can't be specifically sure of that. Um, and, and, and while the governor has made some steps to try to send out uh, some National Guard to help in various health, public health, health settings, uh, he's re- been awfully quiet about about vaccines lately. Uh, He certainly is uh, not getting involved in the mask question these days. Is it, is he, is your sense of this that he recognizes that he, as he's in a hot political campaign, he just can't afford to be too out front in mitigate, in talking about mitigation? That's a good point. He still talks about the need for getting vaccinated, the need for for, for taking, you know, talking to your doctor, taking certain precautions. Um, but he does not want to wade into a mask battle. He, he's, he's also kind of toned down the rhetoric against the city of Atlanta, for instance, and against local governments that are, that are pushing for more stringent restrictions. Um, so, but it doesn't seem to be on the forefront of, of, of his agenda either way, to rail against mask requirements or to, or to you know, or, or vaccine mandates and take another route. He, he is focused on the budget and the political implications now of, 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 of his legislative priorities rather than um, rather than talking about Omicron. All right, Greg Bluestein, uh, thank you for taking us uh, out of another edition of Political Rewind. It was really great to have all of you here to join us for this conversation. Uh, Heather Farley, Adrian Jones, Karen Owen, and of course, Greg Bluestein. I'm, I'm really grateful to you. You Covered a lot of ground, and uh, that was terrific. Um, we are just about out of time for today's show. I want to remind you, it's Wednesday, which means another edition of the Political Rewind newsletter is going to be coming out at some point later today. If you're not a subscriber, uh, you can become one pretty easily. Just go to gpb.org newsletters. And you'll see our newsletter there. And I hope you will subscribe. We're trying every week to give you some of the highlights of what's in political news right now. Um, the newsletter that comes out later today, among other things, will have a kind of an interesting little item about the country club up in uh, in uh, the Ro- in Rome, Georgia, that uh, didn't want the owner of an adult bookstore to be a member, but they thought Marjorie Taylor Greene and her conspiracy uh, theories were perfectly acceptable and brought her in. Read the newsletter. We're out of time. See you all tomorrow.